Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. We're also grateful to those of you who offer member support, for which I'm pleased to offer in return member-only content curated with our authors and myself. You can find out more about this member-only content and how you can help authors give voice to their written words at charlottereaderspodcast.com. When Landis is not getting under the cover at bookstores, at events, and on the road, he does it in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. But enough with the prologue. Let's get under the covers. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Hey, listeners, in this Under the Covers episode, we meet Dennis Kerrigan, author of the novel Unusual Suspects, which involves a bunch of oddball, quirky, funny, lovable characters thrown into a chaotic mix when a dead body is found on the front porch of a small North Carolina town. Now, Dennis is an erstwhile teacher, businessman, graphic artist, member of the Charlotte Writers Club, and the author of two novels. And he says that Unusual Suspects plays to his strengths because he loves wisecracks, witticisms, and those quirky characters. Hey, Dennis, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. So, Dennis, um, you're married to the novelist Sandy Hill, right? That's right. She has five books. You only have two, right? Well, I'm trying. Yeah, what's up, man? She's got <laughs> she's got more books than you. <laughs> she started sooner. She started sooner. That's your excuse, and you're sticking to it? Yes. You met Sandy at a writing event, as I understand. That's what you told me many well, years ago. There was a party that neither one of us wanted to go to. But uh, we decided individually, without knowing each other, that we would go to the party because we might meet someone. And uh, we met in the driveway of this woman's house. And uh, that was pretty much it. <laughs> it was love at first driveway meeting, huh? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was for me. Yeah. It took me a little bit longer to get her on, to, to on board. Get, to, to convince her, yeah. Well, I think you said that she invited you to her critique group, and then you've been together ever since. That's right. So... Um, does she critique your work? One can get her to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Now, you got an MA in English Literature from the University of Detroit, right? That's right. How, how does that uh, helped you in your writing or not? Well, it kept me from making a lot of grammatical errors, I guess. Mm-hmm. Gave me some background in other writers and how they've uh, what they've done. Mm. And so how, how long have you been at this thing called writing? Oh, I would think about 25 years. 25 years, and what was it that sparked your desire to, to be a writer? I always wanted to be a writer, but uh, I didn't have time. Up until 25 years ago, I was a very busy guy. I had a company to run, I had two, uh, two children to raise. And then finally, when uh, I got that situation under control, I was able to, in the first novel, uh, set in Memphis in the 19th century, uh, I was able to go to Memphis and do some research there and go to 
Nashville and see the State Library and get some background on the book. Mm. But that yeah. had been very difficult before. So before we get under the covers, let's talk about the book cover itself of Unusual Suspects, because when you held it up the other night, uh, about a month ago at the Charlotte Writers Club, I could see it across the room, and it really captured my attention. Mm -hmm. you know, you've got, uh, as, as we're looking at it here, you've got a green background that looks like a, might be a, a fingerprint. Yes. Is that right? And then you got some, uh, some darkened, sort of shadowed silhouette characters on the front. Yes. Where'd that idea come from? Well, um, the woman who helped me with this design, her name is Mindy Kuhn, uh, came up with that. Uh, it, it was my verbal, I, just, I didn't give her any copy. I just said what I would like to have is a bunch of characters in silhouette, various different sorts of characters in silhouette, um, and unusual suspects with the UN, and it's kind of a brush word thing added on. Yeah, you've got uh, that word unusual. The, the first two letters, un, is in red. It's kind of angled, so you got the unusual. Like an afterthought, yeah. Like an afterthought, suspects. And then uh, uh, Mindy uh, gave me a series of silhouetted uh, people standing up against the, in a, in a lineup. You have a board like that right, behind right. you <laughs> to see how tall you are. And um, we had to go through several um, iterations of that getting the right mix of people. Mm. Well, so just, we have a cop and a farmer and a woman here and a fat guy. Yeah, you got you got a uh, bunch there. As I said, it caught my attention. You, you do judge a book by its cover. And so when I flip to the back of the book here, uh, I see that uh, you, you're highlighting the Coke machine incident, which we're going to hear about and read, which kind of gets this book started, right? Yeah. Why a Coke machine? Yeah. Um, well. Why not? It's kind of a symbol to me, you know. It's like the first self-service device that we ever had. Put money in, get coke out, mm. and uh, something everyone's familiar with. And it sort of haunts the story. It keeps coming up, keeps coming and back. confusing people. <laughs> Why are you talking about a coke machine? Okay, you know. Well, maybe you can flesh that out for us before the show is over here. But uh, okay, so in the back of the book, you've got a couple of nice uh, uh, endorsements. Um, for the book, you have uh, an endorsement from Jennifer Ruff, a USA Today best-selling author, who, who is actually going to be on the show here. And she says that you bring quirky characters, the small town, and the mystery to life in a way that is guaranteed to make you smile with every fantastic page. That's pretty good there. Yeah. 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 So how much do you pay her for that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. Uh, and it is true because when I read the uh, you know, first parts of this book, I'm thinking – Okay, this is, uh, I feel like I'm in uh, Mayberry RFD a little bit, is that, except uh, maybe not Andy as the sheriff. I wanted it to be sort of like that atmospherically, but I wanted it to, to be a lot more involved, more complex than that, mm. um, more serious in some ways. I mean, we have, we have the, the serious and the absurd going through the story, like we have a priest there, but he's an atheist. So, I mean, it's full of contradictions. Mm. Yeah, and Susan Mills Wilson talks about the humor that you bring. She's another local author who's an endorser uh, of this book. Uh, do you enjoy? Uh, did you enjoy embedding the humor in this book? Is that something you said you, you come to that naturally? You said. I, f I found it. I actually tried to write more serious things, but I found it kept it creeping in. Yeah. You know, the absurdity of things kept creeping in, 
And I think I finally just sort of surrendered to it. Uh, that's what I enjoy writing most. And it's much different than your first novel, Memphis, 1873, right? I mean, right. That, that's more of a historical yes. piece. Okay. Are right, you ready to get under the covers with me? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. If you like our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, please consider leaving a short written review about Charlotte Reader's podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you leave a review, it helps authors reach more listeners. You can keep up with news about the show and member-only content for our member supporters by joining our email list. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join the list, we will give you a free ebook written by me, the first book in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So, Dennis, um, if you could, just give me an idea as to some of the type of quirky characters we have in this story. Well, one of my favorite characters is this minister. Uh, he, has, he was a Catholic priest, and mainly under the pressure of his mother, who was running uh, numbers and prostitution and drugs and all kinds of things like that. And so she insisted that he become a priest because the, they can't possibly turn away a priest. And so he stands at the center of the story somehow? Yeah, people come to him for advice. Oh, okay. They don't so, know what they're doing half so, the time. So all these unusual suspects are calling on him. Yeah. And, and of these unusual suspects, you've got a drunken husband, a mystery-loving coroner. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. One of these uh, police figures that's involved in the story, I believe you describe as a streetwise cop from Detroit, you also mentioned this is a love story. How does this character figure into that part of the story? Well, the love interest is a woman named Jonelle Jeter, who happens to be the sister of Hiram Jeter, who happens to be the uh, deputy sheriff. So they necessarily get involved in, in investigating these crimes. But she is a special character for me. She's um, prescient. She... Uh, can look at a person and start telling you all about them. She doesn't just look at people, she watches them. Mm. And when she comes in, comes to talk to, to you, everything else in the room vanishes. It, you're, you're the center of her soul and attention for that while. So, who, so who is it that uh, ends up uh, dead on the front porch at the start of the, start of the book? Well, that is uh, Tucker Buckner's wife. And the immediate suspicion is, of course, this truck trashes into a Coke machine at the beginning of the story because he's, the driver is drunk. He smashes up his face. He gets put in jail. And then we find out that his wife is dead. And naturally, uh, and because he was drunk out of his mind. So naturally, uh, the assumption is that this drunken rage of his has something to do with his wife's death. So Agatha Christie used to put, uh, you know, a lot of characters in, in a room in a, in a in an old house and yeah. uh, try to solve it. You sort of put a bunch of characters in a small town who are facing uh, suspicion for yes. different reasons, right? She gathers her people at the end of the story, too. Yeah, have you done that? And mine are all over the place. All over the place. So, no. Dennis, so Dennis, I'd like you to, at this, because Charlotte Reese Podcast, authors give voice to the written words. I'm going to have you read the first chapter of the book. So anytime you're ready, take it away. Very late on a summer Saturday night in Travis County, North Carolina, Tucker Buckner drove his pickup truck into the Jiffy Mart parking lot. 
missing the gas pumps by inches and then plowed into a drink machine. And not just any drink machine, but Bo Chesney's 1957 Coca-Cola CS-96A. Bo had spent a small fortune restoring it and adapting it for a dollar instead of a dime. The truck had no airbags and Tucker hadn't fastened his seat belt, so he slammed his face into the steering wheel. This resulted in having two black eyes and a broken nose. The truck, a 25-year-old Dodge Ram, fared better. Beauty wasn't its strong suit to begin with. Shortly thereafter, Sheriff Lenny Doster received a panicky call from his deputy, Hiram Jeter, concerning a traffic accident in front of the convenience store right next door to the sheriff's office, resulting in the destruction of a Coke machine. And not just any Coke machine, Hiram squealed, but Bo Chesney's pride and joy. What cried Lenny? slammed the phone down, wondering why the knucklehead had found it necessary to wake him up over such a trivial matter. The phone rang again, and Hiram continued as though nothing had interrupted him. And get this, he said, the drunk driver was, are you ready for this? Tucker Buckner. He smashed his face up a little, but I've got him in the lockup. Ha! Lenny hung up the phone again. Now he was awake. He hated Tucker and hated him since high school for being a pretty boy football star who had stolen Janet's suite right under Lenny's nose. While Lenny hadn't actually asked her to the prom, he was trying to get up the courage, and Tucker knew it. And he had just walked up to her and draped an arm around her shoulders and said, Hey, babe, are we on for the prom? Right in front of Lenny. That was 15 years ago, and Tucker still thought himself a hot stuff, but all he was was a used-up sports equipment salesman and a drunk. And Lenny, after all this time, still carried a torch for Janet. She still had that sweet smile and little girl voice and looked so good in tight jeans that it nearly stopped his heart to see her walk by. He vaguely imagined that someday she'd realize what an asshole she'd married and might see the responsible Christian, the public servant, law enforcement officer that he was. True, he had lost some hair and put on a little weight, but the phone rang again. Sheriff, will you please stop hanging up on me, Hiram said. There's more. I got a call from Ruby, Tucker's sister. She said that Sissy Buckner, Tucker's little daughter, called her about something being wrong at Tucker's house, something about Janet. Janet, what about her? Don't know. Sissy said her and Tucker was having a fight last night, something about my sister, Jonell. Ruby said Janet was found on the front porch swing and was unresponsive. They took her to county. That's all I know. I'm about to head over there to the residence to secure the crime scene. All right, now, deputy, you listen to me. You ain't going to do nothing. I want you to sit your skinny ass behind this desk and wait to hear from me. Don't go anywhere, understand? Don't start any investigation. Don't interview anyone. Got it? Jeez, Lenny, just because I tried to help with that kidnapping case. It wasn't a goddamn kidnapping, Hiram. That's the point. It was just a sleepover. And they had forgot to tell her mama, and you got half the town all riled up, ready to get out the pitchforks and torches. Lenny slammed the phone down again. Then he called the police to find out what they knew and who had jurisdiction. The Coke machine incident happened right next door, and that was Travis County, but the Buckners lived inside the town of Crawley. A detective named Jack Fuller answered and told Lenny that the woman in question, Janet Sweet Buckner, was dead, an apparent victim of a homicide. Lenny barked out a sob and had to take a minute to compose himself. I'm sorry, Fuller said. Was she a friend of yours? I didn't mean to sound so abrupt. I've only been here a few months. Yeah, Lenny said, she's, was, special to a lot of us, you know, all the way back to high school. 
Fuller waited a beat and said, I'm just about to head out there to talk to her sister-in-law, Ruby. Do you want to come along? Oh, no, uh, I don't want to be talking to Ruby. I'll let you handle that. i got to make some phone calls. Just keep me in the loop. Sure thing. Lenny put the phone down very gently. So, Dennis, I'm listening to that, and th- this is the chapter that actually got me interested in wanting to have you on the show here. I read it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. I'm laughing. Uh, I suddenly see that there's going to be some conflict here, some loss already. Uh, um, I see that, that you've got this character, the deputy, who I suppose could be a Barney Fife type character. Um, he, he mistakes a sleepover for, for yeah. kidnapping, kind of like you only get to carry you know, the bullet in your pocket, Barney, not, right. you know, not with you. So you've got that going on. And then you're going to start to introduce these other characters, and and this thing's going to kind of spin out. So how did you get uh, how did you get the idea to write this? You, you, I mean, because you first wrote historical fiction, and now you shifted entirely to a different genre. Well, I think it just grew uh, out of the characters. I started with this character, Joe Nell, I believe. Found her kind of fascinating. What what kind of a woman would grab a man's attention immediately, and because she had to be drawn into the story quickly. And I, I did want some kind of a love interest, and so I sort of felt it myself, and uh, created her, and then a, a cop, and then a crime, and then an apparent homicide, but with it uh, always in mind that things are not what they seem. Mm. Did this? Uh, did the whole story come to you at once, or did it kind of play out as you were writing it? It grew as characters walked on stage that mm-hmm. I didn't summon. They just right. came on. They just came on. That's so yeah, that. like there's one one point in the story, Jack, uh, the policeman, goes over to see Jonelle, and he knocks on the wrong door. And these two w- very weird characters come out, and, uh, you know, they you, live off on, on another planet. You weren't even expecting that when you were writing? I, no, I didn't know they were going to be uh, <laughs> there. And people don't understand that sometimes about writing. You, you're, you're writing, you're going in a certain direction, and then a character either says something or a new character comes into the scene that you hadn't necessarily contemplated. Well, my, my critique group uh, is, call, it calls itself uh, crime fiction. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I started with, of course, crime. And, um, but then I decided, well, what, what is it really? Is it really a crime? Are these people even capable of crime? Right, right. So, well, you created some you know, potential um, interesting suspects, it sounds like, and uh, suspects who have a, a story of their own. And so uh, you're, what you've got to decide is uh, you know, who, who is going to be the, the killer, right? Yeah, well, I just have to bring him in. Yeah, he him, comes in. Him or her, right? Later in the story. <laughs> Him or her, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you have a routine in this process? Do you write during a certain time of the day? Do you, did you uh, attack this? Uh, no, that would imply discipline. You're not a discipline guy? I, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm very easy on myself. Uh, you, do, you do have a sense of humor, though, I can tell already, uh, and it comes through in your work. Uh, why do you think that's important to your own writing, to have this sense of humor? It, re- it reflects the way I see the world, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think I take life and the world very seriously anymore. I think you you pointed out to me that you used you know of course you did write for the Charlotte Writers Club newsletter and you liked injecting some humor into that because I mean heck otherwise it's just a newsletter right yeah and uh, I think you had one story about how you uh, 
your high school English teacher once said that a story you'd written was meaningless on so many levels. Yes. Yeah, and and you and you've written two novels now, right? <laughs> so that'll teach her. That'll teach her one. That'll <laughs> teach her. What Dennis is before we wrap up here. What do you hope people will find uh, in this book that you've written? What do you hope they get out of it? Hope they have fun. Mm-hmm. And did you have fun writing it? I did. Are you gonna do another one? Yes. Yeah. Some uh, more, some more unusual suspects, or what? That yeah, that's the only kind I like anymore. Okay. Mm. Well, Dennis, I appreciate you being on the show, and uh, there'll be information in, in the uh, show notes, uh, links uh, about Dennis and about the book Unusual Suspects, and where you can find it. Uh, so, uh, if you want to go to a small town to find out uh, what some unusual characters are doing when a body is found on the front porch, uh, pick up Unusual Suspects. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written work. Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author. But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life of a local or regional author. Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone. If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter. We'd love to have you as a member. And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me. Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media. Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me, or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions. You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.